Today's scripture ser- uh, sermon scripture reading comes from Acts 16, verses 16 to 40. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safe. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembled with fear and fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before him, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent sent to let you go. Therefore, come out and go in peace. But Paul said said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison, and do, they now, and do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and, vis- and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's open it with a quick word of prayer. Jesus, as we approach your word, may you speak to us clearly. May we hear your voice. May our hearts be ready to receive what it is you want to speak to us. Spirit, may you fill us. May you do the work you have. We offer this time to you for the sake of and in the name of our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. One thing I've discovered since I've become a homeowner 
uh, which happened a while ago, but uh, I realized that I enjoy the occasional house project. The occasional, not all the time. There are many house projects that are on Marco's list for me that are still TBD. But I enjoy the occasional house project. One reason is because it's, it's kind of a, a change of pace for my life. So ministry is very intangible. There's no beginning, no end. It goes on forever. House projects, it's like there's a beginning point, there's an end point, there's a great resolution, hopefully it turned out well. But either way, it's going to be done. Uh, so it's, it's a nice change of pace. But, but more significantly, one of the things I've, I've found I really enjoy about uh, house projects um, is the process of thinking out the project itself. And so we redid our, our basement recently, and I'd never redone a basin before, and so a lot of it was looking at other basements and seeing how they did all their parts and then trying to kind of reverse engineer it and figure out how do I replicate this in my basement. Uh, I just find that a lot of fun to do that in my mind and, and try to figure that out. Now, we are getting back into the book of Acts. We took six weeks off. We were doing an Advent series in December. We spent a couple weeks looking at Christian community. And here we are back in Acts. Uh, Acts catalogs the beginning of the Christian church, how it all began. Uh, And it's exciting because we get to see the gospel break out of Jerusalem and move across the whole Mediterranean world. And Acts finishes in Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire with Paul there to share the gospel. It's exciting to see the whole thing happen, but one thing you've probably noticed uh, if you've read through Acts or through the sermon series is that there's nothing in this process that you could reverse engineer and do the whole thing over again. Uh, If you want to start some kind of religious movement and you tried to take Acts as like, well, we just do what they did and the same thing will happen, it's going to be a disaster. I mean, if you want to use Acts as kind of like, you know, something you could reverse engineer and make this all happen again, you know, you start with some unimpressive fishermen in a backwater province, the Roman Empire, men who had deeply ingrained racial prejudices, and then you call them to go reach the very ethnicities that they despise. And even more than that, you take a man who may be even more racial, more racist, who also hates Christians, and you make him your pioneering missionary. And you send him and two other guys out with, like, no plan, no missions agency, no real strategy, no, like, language school. Just send them out on a sailboat. Good luck. Uh, if, you, if a missionary came to you today and that was their strategy, you'd, you'd have good cause to ask some questions. And yet, the gospel explodes across the Mediterranean world, and Jesus has amazing things, and And he does it in ways that we wouldn't expect to work, that we wouldn't expect to be how Jesus will work. And the reason he did it then, and the reason why Jesus continues to do this today, is so that we might see that the power and the glory are his, that he alone is capable of doing these things. And the reason why Jesus continues to work in very unintuitive, unexpected ways is because we forget. We forget that the power is his, that Jesus alone can extend and advance his kingdom. So in our, in our story today, we're going to see two conversions, which are really, in, in many ways, a reversal of what you'd expect. They're unexpected in some various ways. And Jesus does it this way to show the Philippian Christians and to show us that, again, the power and the glory belongs to him alone. So a roadmap for where we're going to be this morning. Our first point, as well as our first reversal or unexpected occurrence, is freeing the slave. Second point, delivering the jailer. Third point, humbling the powerful. So let's go ahead and get into our first point, freeing the slave. Now, again, a quick recap, because we've been out of Acts for six weeks. 
Um, Paul has finished his first missionary journey, which covered uh, Asia Minor, that would be modern-day Turkey, and he's gone back to revisit the church he's planted, and as he's there, he's in a city called Troas, and he gets what's called the Macedonian vision, because it's a vision of a man from Macedonia begging Paul, come to Macedonia and share with us. So Paul takes it as guidance of the Holy Spirit. They set out, I should have a map, uh, they set out from Troas, they cross the Aegean Sea, um, and uh, I designed that, by the way, in case anyone needs some graphic designing. Anyways, and the first city they do real ministry in is, is the city of Philippi. Uh, so again, Macedonia is kind of northern Greece. And so here they're beginning Paul's second missionary journey. Now, when they get to Philippi, they look for a synagogue to preach in. That's kind of Paul's modus operandum. He goes into a city, tries to find a synagogue where Jews would meet, and he would announce to them the Messiah has come, and then see where it goes. But he gets to Philippi, and there's no synagogue there. And so he actually goes outside the city to a place of prayer. He finds a group of women praying, and God opens the heart of a a wealthy businesswoman named Lydia. And she becomes the first Christian convert in Philippi. And in fact, the church is housed in her house uh, during during this beginning part of the Philippian uh, ministry. So this is where we pick up. And I'm going to go ahead and read verses 16 to 18 for us again. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So it says that they're, you know, going about their business and they encounter this girl and describes her as having a spirit of divination. Now, in the kind of Roman mythology or the Roman religious beliefs of the time, what that meant is that people viewed her as being inhabited by the god Apollo, who would speak through her these prophetic utterances that could be, you know, secrets that no one knew, or they could be predictions about the future. And Luke doesn't affirm that understanding of what's going on, but he does affirm that this girl was possessed by an evil spirit. And the other thing that's important for us to know is that not only is this slave girl possessed by a spirit, but she's being exploited by her owners. They're using her for the money that she can make as she makes these kind of prophetic utterances. And the slave girl, she's falling around Paul, screaming, these men are the servants of the Most High God, proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Now, from first pause, it's like, why is, okay, this is an evil spirit. Why is it essentially evangelizing for Paul? Like, what is going on here? And it, it doesn't tell us. Perhaps it was trying to discredit it, trying to associate the gospel with this kind of pagan cultic ritual. I think more likely it was just distracting. Uh, some of you have gone on our neighborhood walks when we walk around the neighborhood and try to meet people and share the gospel. Can't, that's in itself is intimidating enough. Can you imagine if you had to do that with a, a like 12-year-old girl behind you screaming, these people belong to the most high God. Like it was just, we would not have very good conversations if that were going to happen. And so this girl is, is doing this for a couple days in a row. Finally, Paul has had enough. And under Christ's authority, with Christ's power, he commands the spirit, come out. And the spirit immediately comes out. Um, now the ESV says that Paul is annoyed, and that's one possible way to interpret that word. The KJV, King James Version, actually interprets it as uh, 
He was grieved. And I think that's probably closer to what Paul was feeling. Yeah, there's probably irritation because she's distracting. But also, here's this, again, 10-year-old, 12-year-old girl who's, who's being so afflicted by the Spirit, she's literally losing herself. I mean, she's, she's, she's falling around these two strangers, screaming at the top of her voice for days on end. She's, she's lost herself. And that's just, there's, there's just grief there to see what sin and evil can do in the life of a person. And so Paul exercises this evil spirit. Now, we're not explicitly told that she becomes a Christian, the slave girl, but I think we're supposed to assume that she does because it comes right after Lydia becomes a Christian. It comes right before the Philippian jailer becomes a Christian. I think it's just assumed that she also becomes a Christian. This is our first conversion, and we'll get to why this is a reversal or why reversal of what you'd expect. But I want to give a side note. We see here why slaves were drawn in the first century to early church. We know this from extra biblical sources. Talk about how there were Christians made up of. I mean, it was usually in kind of like a sneering way, like oh, they have like slaves who go. We know it because a lot of Paul's letters, he addresses slaves. Like, there was a big enough population of slaves in these churches that Paul would actually give specific encouragements and exhortations to the slaves. And, the re- and, 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 and again, remember, you know, this, this slave girl here, she would have been literally the bottom level of the society in Philippi. She was property, owned by other people. And the only value she had in her owner's eyes was the money she could make them, the profit she could bring them. That was how the city viewed Philippi. But in Paul's eyes, she was a lost girl whom Jesus could save and heal. And the reason Paul saw her that way is because God doesn't care about the social distinctions we make between the rich and the poor and the oppressive and the unimpressive, between the high class and the low class. But in God's eyes, she was a beautiful and valuable little girl made in his image, whom he had designed and created in her mother's womb. That's how God saw her. Beloved, never forget that God does not look at you or me with the same lenses that our society does. God is not impressed with the things that we are impressed with. He doesn't care what zip code you live in. He doesn't care your educational background or what you do for a job. In God's eyes, a homeless man sleeping his hangover off on the side of the road is just as precious and valuable as the mayor of Louisville. And so we see that oftentimes downtrodden in society found a home in the Christian church. But again, because God does not see as we see, there's this great reversal. And here's the great reversal. We have this slave girl who is obviously enslaved in more than one way. She's literally a slave physically, but she's also spiritually enslaved. She's completely owned by this evil spirit so that she falls around a stranger for days shouting things she does not believe. So that's, you know, she's clearly enslaved, but it's that girl that's set free, whom Christ frees from the evil spirit, never to be enslaved again. In contrast, her owners, who did not seem enslaved, right, and they're not slaves, it comes out that they really were the ones who were enslaved. Because as we'll see later as we keep reading, when this girl is freed, all her owners care about is their loss of revenue. This girl whose life was literally being destroyed, all they care about is the fact that they're going to lose money. I mean, how distorted can your perspective and your preferences and your desires be? How inhumane. So who, 
the slave girl's freed. Whereas her free owners, it's revealed they really are the ones who are enslaved to their own distorted and perverted desires. That's the first conversion, the first reversal. That's the slave girl who is, in fact, freed, while her owners are the ones who are revealed to be enslaved. We go to our second point and our second reversal, which is pardoning a jailer. This is, again, uh, verses 19 to 24. Let me read these for us again as well. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, and they dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. When they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet with stocks. Again, we see the distorted desires of this girl's owners. When she's freed, they don't rejoice with her. They're just like, well, there goes our cash cow. There goes our money. And, and, and they go after Paul, not because they think they can be restored their prosperity. There's nothing that a magistrate can do to restore this, you know, to make this girl have the spirit of divination again. They're just going after Paul out of vengeance. They're just angry. And they make accusations against Paul, and they're very, they're very clever in the accusations they make. If they went before the city and said, hey, this guy, he's, he cast out this demon, and we've lost all this money, people would have been like, well, boo-hoo. Tough cookies. But instead, one thing to know about Philippi that's really important is that it was a Roman colony, uh, which means that it had been founded by usually Roman expats, like people from the city of Rome, oftentimes retired soldiers. And it was kind of part of their retirement package. They could move to the city and they would create basically a little island of Rome in the midst of whatever country it was in. So it was Macedonia, Greek culture, but there had been this little island of Roman culture, Roman legislative system. And so in Philippi, they would have had a deep pride in their Roman identity, baked into their kind of city ethos. And that is what the owners appeal to, to get the city on their side. So first, they make three accusations. In verses 20, first they say, these men are Jews. So not so subtle racism. They're not uh, like us. They don't worship the same gods as us. They're different than us. First accusation. Second, they're disturbing the peace. They're causing conflict, contention. And then third, again, the most significant thing they say is these men are advocating customs that are contrary to Roman practice. They are threatening our identity as Romans, that which we find so much of our value and our identity in. That's what these men are questioning. And as a result, the slave owners are able to get the entire city on their side. They cause basically a mob. The city leaders are on their side. And they strip Paul and Silas naked in the middle of the city, and they beat them and throw them in jail. Now, it's interesting because in some ways, these charges are completely false. Uh, Paul would actually teach Christians to be good citizens, to live at peace with their neighbors wherever possible, to submit to governing authorities wherever possible. And so to accuse them of disturbing the peace is is just wrong. But nonetheless, for the next 300 years, Christians would be viewed with suspicion. And the reason is because they were never Roman enough. Uh, there was, in the ancient world, something called the emperor cult. And it was 
from a purely kind of political socio perspective is brilliant. Like, how do you give social cohesiveness to an empire that involves many languages, many ethnicities, many religions? We develop a religion that everyone participates in because religion gives unity. And the religion is centered around worshiping the emperor. Again, it's very strategic if you're trying to build unity uh, around the Roman emperor. And so the Roman emperor is seen as divine, and you would worship him. Again, you'd have to give up your own religions. You just had to add the emperor worship as something else. Of course, Christians weren't willing to do that. Christians would say, no, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus alone is Lord. And that was seen as subversive and divisive, and they suffered for it. Every government, every political party in the world will never be content with just your vote. They'll want your whole allegiance. They'll want all of you. And in such a divided time as today, especially in America, where Christians are divided as much as our country, we have to remind ourselves, we may not agree on who we vote for, we may not agree on what political party we want to be part of. But we have to agree on one thing, which is Jesus alone is Lord. And every other identity, everything else in our life bows to him. And if we keep that front and center, then we can remain unified. But here's the reality. Is that if you do that, and if you're true to that proclamation, Jesus alone is Lord. If you, if you do that, you will likely experience pushback, blowback, you might even be attacked and maligned. And as hard as it is when it happens, if it does happen, just know that you're in good company. Because it happened to Jesus, it happened to Paul. It means you're following in the footsteps of your Lord. So again, Paul and Silas, they're falsely accused of unpatriotic activities. They're beaten, put in jail. And here we see the deliverance, which is the second reversal of, of what we would expect as Jesus advances his kingdom. And this is verses 25 to 34. Let me read this for us. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, and he took them the same hour of the night, and he washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And then he brought them into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Now, before I get to this second reversal, this deliverance, I actually want to just point out verse 25. Okay, Paul and Silas, bruised bones, lacerated backs, in the Deepest, darkest dungeon in Philippi jail. Midnight, what are they doing? They're praying and they're singing hymns. Uh, this is the only time in the whole book of Acts where the Christians are, are said to be singing. And in fact, it's one of only four times in the whole New Testament 
or at least this certain verb, where Christians are said to sing. There's a lot of times commands to sing, but describing Christians actually singing. There's four times. This time, two other times, are Jesus. On the night he was betrayed, before he goes up to the Mount of Olives, he knows what's coming, and it says that him and his disciples sing a hymn together. Jesus, knowing the suffering he was going through, fortified himself by singing. Never miss how powerful it is when we sing together. Martin Luther wrote, music drives away the devil and makes people joyful. Next, after theology, I give music the highest place and the greatest honor. Uh, You may encounter events and seasons in your life which are so difficult and so overwhelming, you, you feel like you can't even pray. But you can sing And when you sing, the devil flees. That was just a side note. But here's God's deliverance, the reversal. Because in the darkest hour of the night, as Paul and Silas are praying and singing in their pain, God works this amazing deliverance, which in fact is a reversal. For a while, it looked like Paul and Silas were the ones who needed deliverance. They're the ones who've been beaten black and blue, blood dripping down their back. They don't know what's coming next. And they're in this deepest, darkest dungeon. It's like, they're the ones who need help. But they're safely in God's hands. And what we'll see is that it was the jailer, the one charged with keeping them in jail. He was the one who desperately needed deliverance. Because God sends this earthquake that is clearly not just an earthquake. Uh, When earthquakes happen, buildings fall down. It does not conveniently open all of the jail cell doors and break all the chains. That is not how earthquakes work, okay? God sends this miraculous earthquake. Boing, all the doors spring open. All the chains fall off. And it's clear to the jailer, at least, that this is not an ordinary physical event. Because of how he responds. He tries to kill himself. Part of that is probably he realizes if all the prisoners escape, his life's forfeit. That's how the system worked. But also, again, he was charged with, 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 with guarding these men. And all of a sudden he realizes, well, whatever divine being just worked this miracle, I'm on the wrong side. He tries to kill himself. Again, the jailer, and you just see the reversal here. The jailer is one that needs physical safety. He's literally about to kill himself, and, uh, and it's Paul that has intervened and stays his hand. I mean, do you see that they're just dripping with irony? The condemned prisoner is the one protecting his own jailer from harming him. He says, no, don't, don't harm yourself. We're all still here. But more significant, the jailer needed spiritual deliverance. And we see in verse 30 to 31, then he brought them out. This is the jailer brought Paul and Silas out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and all your household. Again, it looked like Paul and Silas were the ones that were in trouble, but, but in the reversal of God's kingdom, it was the jailer that desperately needed deliverance. And Paul and Silas, they were fine. They were in the hands of God. Now, when you read this, at least when I read this a lot of times, and you, and you see the jailer's response, you're like, I wish it was always that easy. Like, they be like, what must I do to be saved? Like, you know, he sees God's power and then immediately knows he needs forgiveness of sins. And it's like, how did he arrive at that conclusion so quickly? It doesn't, it doesn't tell us. But one thing that's helpful to know, again, just to give some depth and context to the story, uh, Roman jailers were usually retired Roman soldiers. 
Uh, and so a legionnaire would have been someone who had done a whole lot and seen a whole lot that they probably weren't very proud of. And then as a jailer, he may have had to have done much and seen much. And so here is a man whose conscience was burdened. And at the very least, when he saw this miraculous event, it brought, the, to the, it brought that, those burdens to the surface. And so again, here we see the second reversal. The, the two who you expected needed the help. They really didn't. They were fine. But it was the jailer who needed deliverance, which God did. Now, before we move on to the third point, just I want to make a quick note here on the diversity of the church in Philippi, because it's, it's something else. Uh, we're told of three converts, three Christians become, sorry, three Philippians become Christians. We know there are more Christians in the Philippian church, but these are the three that Luke tells us about, and I think he's doing it intentionally to show us what the church was like. Okay, you had first Lydia. She was foreign-born, so she was not Greek or Roman, and she was a wealthy businesswoman. So she was like the top of the society. I mean, she had a house big enough to host Paul and all his companions and to serve as the meeting place for the church. So she, she, got, she got money. Then you had the slave girl, who was literally the other end of the socioeconomic spectrum. She would have been property, not fully human. And then you had the Roman, and she'd probably been Greek if she was a slave. And then you had the Roman jailer, who would have been kind of that respectable middle class. I mean, you had different ethnicity. For instance, there is a, a popular rabbi in the second century, this is pretty crazy, who taught Jewish men to begin each day by thanking God that they were not born a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. And yet here we have all three of those being welcomed into the community that Jesus died to start. So the gospel, it's able to break every barrier and to unify an incredibly diverse group. And we may see this and think, oh, well, of course, this was easy because it's the Philippians, right? And the Philippian letter, they're like the golden child who Paul just says great things about, and they just had this amazing unity and diversity, and it was never tense. There were never mistakes. It was never difficult. Well, that would be false. Keep in mind the diversity that we've just seen in the Philippian church when Paul writes the letter to the Philippian church in chapter 2, he tells them that if there's any encouragement, any comfort from love, any participation, any affection, basically, like, if you love Jesus at all, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one in mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It takes on whole new meanings when you realize you got... He's telling Lydia, look, Philip, I may say that you're like the cheese. Don't consider your interests as more significant than the slave girl that worships next to you. Yeah, it was hard in the Philippian church. So this is what the gospel does. It breaks down barriers, unites people from different backgrounds, different education levels, different religious backgrounds. And it unites us around Jesus so that all the praise goes to Jesus because only he could do that kind of a thing. So we've seen two reversals so far, two instances that Jesus does not work as we work. He does not see things as we see things. First, freeing the slave. The slave is set free while her owners, who seem to be free, are in fact enslaved to their own corrupt desires. Second, the deliverance of the jailer. It wasn't Paul and Silas who needed deliverance. It was the jailer who needed deliverance. But third reversal, humbling the powerful. Let's look at verses 35 to 40. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let these men go. 
And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they'd seen the brothers and sisters, they encouraged them, and they departed. Okay, what's going on here? Paul, because he was born in Tarsus, was a Roman citizen. Silas was as well. Just because you were, just because you lived in the Roman Empire didn't make you a Roman citizen. So, for instance, if you were in Israel, you were in the Roman Empire, but you were not a Roman citizen. You had to be born in a Roman city to be a Roman citizen. And if you were a Roman citizen, you had certain rights and privileges that would only be violated at great consequence. One of those was if you were a Roman citizen, you could never be beaten or caned or whipped. Secondly, if you were a Roman citizen, you were entitled to a hearing always. And so here's Paul and Silas, they're beaten, and they're not given a hearing. And the leaders of the city understand the consequences for this. It might not just cost them their job, it may cost them a whole lot more than that. And that's why all of a sudden they change their tune. And there's some humor in here, right? Like, you got these city officials who are so powerful, they don't even need to give these men a hearing. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. Don't send your secretary, don't send a message you're going to come into this jail and apologize to our faces and then lead us out. And there's just some humor in here. This is the third reversal. The powerful are humbled. And of course, why is Paul doing this? He's not doing this because he's on a power trip. He's trying to protect the church because he's going to leave, but those Christians are going to stay and they're going to have to work out how do they work out this allegiance to Jesus in a very Roman city And basically, he wants to give the city officials a little warning, like, hey, next time be a little bit more cautious. He's meant to protect the church. But this is, again, a reversal. The powerful are humbled, and they're forced to serve the very people that they had been oppressing. This is is God's work in Philippi. There's three, three reversals. A slave is set free, a jailer is delivered, and the strong are humbled. It's three reversals for anyone who has eyes to see and ears to hear that Jesus' kingdom is not like our kingdoms. And his ways are not like our ways. He does not see through the distorted lenses that we often see through. Because often those who seem the, the best off in this world are in fact the ones who most desperately need salvation. And in contrast, often those who may seem the most destitute or the most in danger are the ones who are within God's hands. Jesus intentionally saves people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, from every socioeconomic background, from every educational background, from every religious background, so that our unity would not be in shared human interests or in our preferences or the fact that we have chemistry with one another, but that would be in Jesus alone, so that Jesus alone will receive the glory for what he has done in our midst. Let's pray. Jesus, as we see what you did in Philippi, we're reminded that you are God and we are not. 
and you accomplish all kinds of things in ways we couldn't fathom. Lord, the fact that you saved us despite all of our blindness and all of our hardness. Jesus, we worship you as the king. May we always and forever say you alone are Lord. May we always give you the glory that is yours. Acknowledge that the power is yours. We pray this in your holy and your beautiful name. Amen.